0: How many tickles does it take to make a squid laugh? Eight. You?
1: Oh, I (laughs) I thought this was was a rhetorical question. No, no, man. This is real. Oh, uh, I didn't realize it was going to be a test so soon. Every Uh, listener
2: is screaming, 10 tickles right now. (laughs) Yes,
1: 10 tickles. 10 tickles.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. We
2: are the worst joke
0: tellers. (laughs) No man, that's amazing. That's amazing. uh, By the way, this was jokes so bad that they're good. Yeah. All right, debatable. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Hey, easy. Somebody be downer tonight. Hey, somebody, somebody chuckled out there. I promise you. (laughs) All right. So here we go in
1: five, four. You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 57. Subscribe to us and leave us a review in iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Send your this fe- us. Oh, son. <laughs> 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 all right, go
0: ahead, please.
2: Visit us At Coding Blocks.net, we can find show notes, samples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback,
0: questions, and rants to comments at CodingBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at Coding Blocks or head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. Man, you'd think we would have had this straight by <laughs> we <were> episode <laughs> 57. That's horrible. I can't read. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're going to get started first with our iTunes reviews. We have, okay, so I haven't seen this one. RJT man Roadkill19, John Hrovitt, Kellen, Bart, bucknell barack 73 and Raythlin
2: sa and over on stitcher we've got Schnargle's humble coder Lunchbag, bag broken java Bairdly, and yarbius so yes. thank you very much guys we really appreciate it
0: man we got some really good ones this time too that that were some super feel good ones like you know change lives type thing so thank you for taking the time to write those they were amazing
2: yeah, we're trying to get better all the time, so it's nice to know and nice to be appreciated when you guys notice that we've done a little bit better. In that vein, I'll try to keep things moving along in the news section here. So, uh, as always, check out the show notes and coding box of slash Episode fifty-seven. It's <laughs> super fast. All right. <laughs> so we've talked
0: about several times on this show about SSDs and how important they are to us as developer and as people who like speed. So there were a couple of things I wanted to point out. One, all SSDs are not made the same. They're not, they're not all equal. There is a difference between, uh, even, a lot of people hear them form factor like M.2, and they're like, oh, that's the fast one. There's M.2 that uses SATA, and then there's M.2 that use PCIe connections. The PCIe are typically faster, and the SATA ones are typically slower. So just be aware of that. Now also know that if you want one of these super crazy fast ones, which one do you have? You have the 950 Pro or the 9 9- yeah. So Outlaw has a 950 Pro and that thing is insanely fast, but also know that you need systems that are going to be compatible to set that as a as a boot disk and that kind of stuff like It's so life changing though. It it totally is. Um yeah, I mean we talk about it all the time. Really, there's no better bang for your buck. And especially nowadays with the prices being as low as they are. But that's why I wanted to bring up something. So in, in one of my news feeds the other day, I got I got a review for what's called my digital SSD. It's a BPX SSD, is their their particular model number. And I forget what it was. Bulletproof something. At any rate, it's a 480 gig uh pcie ssd that has performance on par with the samsungs and it's using one of the most stable and and more sought after controllers a 480 gigger for for about 200 dollars, 2.6 gigabit reads and 1.3 gigabit writes and tom's hardware did a full-on review on this thing and apparently it even beat those numbers in their, in their testing, which is killer. And it's got a five-year warranty on it.
1: Wait, what were those numbers again?
0: Uh, 2.6 gigabit read 1.3, write. Wow. It's so it's right up there with the Samsung at way cheaper. Like we're talking about 150 bucks cheaper for the same size and a five-year warranty. Like it's, it's guaranteed for an insane amount of reads and writes. So, you know, check it out we we've got some links there's uh it, for the most part it hovers around $200 there's a site called mydigitaldiscount.com that occasionally has it for about 180 and they're about to release a 1 terabyte version so I'm waiting for that cuz I think it's supposed to happen either in March or April so
1: <clears throat> yeah you can get the the Samsung 960 which is the uh you know the I guess maybe the popular choice yeah it's pr- let's it's call it. yeah
0: it's the one that people know about
1: yeah, so so your numbers were you said two point six and one point three yep. megabytes per second.
0: Gigabyte or, gigab- or gigabits per I'm second. I'm sorry. Yep.
1: Uh for read and write. Yep. Wait, yeah, two point six for the read, one point three for the write. Yeah, so to compare that then to the Samsung, if you there's the Evo, the nine sixty Evo and the nine sixty Pro and the Evo, which would be the lesser of the two, is three would be three point two read in 1.9 for the right blazing fast yeah
0: but for what, how much is that one going for right now is that probably about 350 for a 500 gigger
1: uh 250 250 oh yeah. that's that's oh, actually okay. come
0: down in price
1: that that's for the evo not for the pro
0: not for the pro right yeah. so it's not guaranteed for as many rights basically is what it boils down to uh
1: the yeah the pro would be like 365 for a 512
0: Okay. So yeah, I mean some good things to know about again the PCIe is way faster because the other ones are actually capped by the SATA um you know bus. So uh just just something fun to know about and you know again to be aware that your system needs to be able to support it if you think you're going to throw it in there as a boot disk, you might need some BIOS updates and that so
1: but the highest storage, you said, for capacity for that was like uh, 480?
0: 480 right now, and they're about to release a one-terabyte version. So okay. uh, I'm keeping my eye on it because I'm curious. That's dirt-cheap storage for that speed.
1: Yeah, because if you want to yeah. get ludicrous, you can get the uh, the 960 in terabyte. You yeah, how much are you going to pay? 700 bucks?
0: Yeah, dude. That I actually looked at the two terabyte. It's close to $1,500 for oh, that man, thing. Oh, <laughs> man.
1: You were supposed to cheat. No, dude, I, I looked a while back. <laughs> it ain't cheap. Well, that's for the Pro, though, the to Pro, be fair. Right. Yeah. yeah, so it's actually 14 now for the 2-terabyte version. But you could get a 1-terabyte Evo, not the Pro, Okay. and that's like a 480
0: Man, that's... Jeez. Uh, it ain't cheap. So uh, the next thing, I brought up the fact that I was going to do a Hackintosh, and I, and I still plan to. But the only thing that's giving me pause is we're right here at the time when Apple's about to release their next round of hardware. And so the Z170 or the uh, Skylake is what is currently in Max out there. And KB Lake is what's out now with the uh, seventh generation, you know, Intel. So I'm waiting to see what happens there so that I don't buy last year's stuff for the same price that I could get the newer stuff for. So I, I'm I'm just kind of waiting for that.
1: <laughs> and wait, so you're saying that you would actually deal with the touch bar?
0: No, 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 Hackintosh. I'm going to build a Hackintosh, but so basically right now the ones that are kind of guaranteed to work are the ones that are on the Skylake architecture, which was last year's stuff.
1: Oh, I follow. I thought you were saying that no. you were like on the fence about building it because you're going to wait for Apple's hardware release because no. they're on the No, no I want I want the new
0: chipset, right? I want I want the new chipset
2: to be compatible before I go uh,
1: you know, plunging
0: in and then that's
2: go ahead. I always buy last year's hardware. So it's funny to say (laughs) here, you're you're waiting for the new stuff. Like I always wait for the new stuff. So I get the old stuff cheaper.
0: That's the thing though. The prices on the old stuff aren't going down. They're actually Uh, going up. The, uh, the sixth generation I seven is actually more than the KB Lake right now, which doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, yeah,
1: I, I find myself wanting an iPad. That's been my weird one
0: Oh really? Yeah, like
1: you're you're going over the Hackintosh thing, and I, I find myself wanting to get an iPad again. And I'm like, eh, I probably should wait. I probably shouldn't.
0: Hey, there's there's hardly a better consumption device out there, dude. My wife's first generation Retina still works amazingly well. Like I can still watch Pluralsight videos on it, dude. Take take an Android tablet from that same time period. Right. It'll barely start up. <laughs> like, and I'm serious. Like it's ridiculous. Right. They they hold on to what they can do for a long time. So and then the last bit of things that I've got here is I'm actually going to be speaking at the Atlanta JavaScript meetup. So Ooh. I'm going to be giving a little talk on writing a Node.js application in a serverless environment. So yeah. So
1: if you oh. are in the Atlanta area <laughs> and you have nothing else better to do than to listen to Alan speak. On a Monday evening, uh, feel free to join us March 27th at 7 p.m. at the Creative Circus, uh, and we will be listening there uh, in full attention to you know, every word he says.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm going to have hecklers in the audience. So I can no, see it now. <laughs> no, no
1: heckling. I, I, I don't plan to heckle. Okay, good. But I. I but am if you did heckle.
2: I bet someone would give you a sticker.
1: Um, No, I don't want to encourage anyone to heckle. So if you heckle, you're definitely not getting a sticker from me.
0: But if you ask for a sticker politely.
1: But I will be there (laughs) with stickers in hand. So if you do join us and, uh, you know, be sure to stop by, say hi, introduce yourself, and uh, I'll give you a sticker even if you don't ask for one.
2: Totally. Awesome. All right. What'd yeah, you and got? we ought to do a episode on serverless architectures, too, because uh, I don't think we've ever really talked about it on the show, and it's just a cool thing. It is, totally. Well, cool. Yeah. Put it um, put it in Trello. Uh, so, I am moving to Orlando, which is very exciting for me, not so much for you guys, unless you live in the Central Florida region. Uh, so, it's exciting for me because it's uh, kind of a city I've been living uh, near Cocoa Beach, and so it's uh, not a lot of programmers around here, so I'm excited about being able to go to meetups and stuff more readily, so... Good news for me. Um, also, want to mention our YouTube channel. Uh, I've got some stuff kind of planned. I've been working on. I'm not super happy with it, so I think I'm going to redo it. But uh, if you go there by the time this episode's out, there should be at least one more video there. Um, so yeah, go to our YouTube channel. We're doing a lot there, and we're actually starting to do a little bit of aggregation too of other programming videos that we see and like and think are cool. So if you make videos or have something to suggest, then hit us up. That'd be awesome. Also. If you aren't familiar with seven day uh, seven day roguelike challenge, then you should check it out. If you just Google seven uh, drl it's a little challenge every year where um, people take a week, and some some people will even take off work and stuff, and they'll try to make a game. I think um, this year there were 100 contestants, and um, if you are interested in games programming or playing games, and uh, it's just kind of a cool thing to watch because a lot of people use this uh, this week to kind of experiment with new techniques and new mechanics and um, just really creative games come out of this and a lot of them go on to become bigger games on steam or whatever so uh, i encourage you guys to check it out
1: yeah and so with that we're happy to announce the winner for episode 55 uh, your copy of clean code is ronan fitzpatrick so look for that coming to you shortly
2: congrats yes
1: And also, uh, just a reminder, we mentioned in the last episode about the PostSharp giveaway giveaway. by joining the mailing list. uh, That's where we're going to be announcing the contest details. So you have until the end of the month for that.
2: Yep. Yep. And I just want to mention with that mailing list too, we've actually given a lot of stuff away and we're going to be giving away some even more stuff. Um, We've done some JetBrains subscriptions. We've got some... um, some a really cool book we're excited about. It's called The Imposters Handbook. We're going to be giving away some of those uh, all in the mailing list. So um, you should definitely join. We're giving away stuff uh, by the truckload all the time. And actually, if you hang on till about the middle of this episode, we're going to be announcing um, possibly our best contest yet. So we're really excited about that, and we think you're going to love it. So definitely stick around to the middle of the episode and be very excited. Yeah, we don't just give
0: back. We give back.
2: <laughs> we give all the stuff back. Give back apparently. big.
0: <laughs> That's right. Awesome. So this episode, we're kind of walking away from clean code for a little while. Uh, we've, we've gone through what more than half the book, I think at this point,
1: we definitely did a lot more chapters than I ever thought that we would. If you go back and you listen to some of the, ori- like the original chapter on the clean code uh, uh, book, I definitely remember commenting something about like, Oh, we're not going to do all of this, right? We're only gonna do a few chapters.
0: Yeah. We're going to do two or three, yeah. then, you know, 12 later or whatever. we right. got to. So, I mean, it, we got a lot of great feedback on it. People love it. But we, we kind of want to step out and do some, you know, get back to some of our our, our roots, I guess. I don't know. So, some somewhat deep dives and some water cooler stuff. So this episode, we want to talk about typically how we've built systems over our careers right? Like just the stuff that we've seen out in the workforce and the ways that we've gone about doing them, because really what we want to do is want to lead up to some better patterns and better ways that that you could do things. And maybe better is not the right term, but other ways to to help improve your software. And it kind of, it, it's a good place following up from clean code. So yeah, I mean, I guess to start it off, like one of the, the first things is this whole idea that the database is the center of your world. And so everything you program goes around it. I mean, you know, what do you guys think? Is that pretty much what we've seen our entire career?
2: Well, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I kind of feel like if you can show me a database schema for the thing you're trying to, to, to build, then I almost don't even need to see anything else. Like a lot of times, like I kind of get like, okay, this is what I need to do. There's one to many here, so I need to have uh, you know a mechanism to create and manage those. And so you can almost build like an administration area just from a schema and like do pretty well, I think. Uh, you know, unless there's any sort of fancy rules there. So I still think that's a valid way to go. Uh, and in general, I do like the idea about. of of at least knowing what kind of persistence you're looking at depending on the kind of app because the more you can convert stuff to data instead of code, I think the better off you are. Uh, And what I mean by that is um, by having, um, you know, things be rows in a table or a flat file or a NoSQL database or whatever, you're um, keeping your code doing Cody type stuff and you're keeping things like constants and um, things that change often uh, outside of the code, which I think is much more easy to manage.
0: And you know, what's funny about that? I, I agree. Like I tend to be able to, anytime that you start a position or you start on a new application or something like there's almost always that schema that you can go look at. And so you can sort of reason about it before even if the terminology isn't great like even if the tables aren't named exactly where they should be but you can look at the keys and relationships and kind of know how everything is supposed to flow based off the schema assuming that it's in good shape but i half wonder if some of the importance there is the accessibility of that data is what makes it so much better right when it's in a database if you want to extract that data you just do a select right? If you want to get that data out of an application, a lot of times it's a lot more difficult. So I think that's, that's almost why a lot of people start there first, because eventually, like, don't they say basically, like some of a company's most important assets are the, are, are the information that they, that they end up storing over time, right? Like their customers or, or their accounts or anything like that. And so being able to get to that data and do reporting off of it or do analysis on it is always important. And so, That's why it seems like for so many years, that's kind of where you start is this is where we want this stuff to live. Now build things around it.
2: Yeah, and the kind of thing uh, I was trying to kind of get at earlier, I'm still not really expressing it very well, is when I think about doing things like kind of code first and keeping away from, from persistence, like sometimes, at least for me, I'll end up doing patterns I'm not really happy with where I start doing things like, well, if it's this class, then do this sort of thing. And what I'd rather be saying is like, if it's this type of data, then do this thing. And so, I really want to shift the focus and keep things out of code and focus more on like different types and stuff that I can specify outside of the application. So I just keep a clean line there between persistence and logic.
1: Yeah, I I don't know where you guys are coming from with this though, because like <laughs> you know, I, I guess maybe like your um, <clears throat> you know where your background is, it, it, you're going to have a different experience. Because I'm thinking like. A lot of times, at least, you know, let's go way back, right? It was like the platform, the popular platforms and the frameworks of the time, they kind of like already laid out a lot of uh, like the database approach that you were going to take. So I'm thinking like, you know, let's go way back to the days of net commerce or web sphere, right? Like it was already kind of a known thing. Like, okay, this is the way the the data that's already been decided for you. You're just, you're going to use this platform, Right.
0: Mm. Yeah. I guess mine's been slightly different. Like it's mine has always been, Hey, we're building this system to do something, whether it was e-commerce or whether it was, you know, internal applications or quoting systems or, or whatever it was like, it was always, Hey, let's get, let's get around this particular centralized database. And it's actually, unfortunately, it's almost like a block in my mind because like, uh, one of the guys from Slack, when I did that video debugging his application where he took, uh, uh, what's the game that you guys love? Overwatch. Overwatch. Yeah. Like basically building teams out. Like I have a hard time thinking like that. Cause I'm like, there's no persistence there, right? Like there's, there's no database. So why would you build an app? But there's lots of little things like that, like little, uh, utilities and stuff that are there. But, but I literally have come from an entire career of the database is like your gold standard, right? Like that's that's where all the important stuff lives, and now you're going to build stuff around it to make it make it work.
1: Well, I kind of had this thought today that like there's there's you know how we talked about uh, the different types of developers in the last episode, right? Yeah. There's I kind of not exactly the same thing, but kind of somewhat it's going to sound related is that there's three kind of classifications of developers, right? There's the developers who do services work. Right, so like you go to a customer, customer wants X Y Z built, and you do it, and then you move on to the next customer, and you rinse and repeat for however long in your career. There's the type of developer who is working on a product. You know, like your company creates one or more products, and that product is installed at one or more customer locations, right? And then there's the type of developer that uh, you work for a company who. Their main business app might be their com, and so your main focus is on just supporting that uh, application, right? And so there's different types of flows that you're going to go, you're going to do for each of those. And so, kind of where I was coming from with the mindset of the framework thing is that, you know, for early in my career, I was in that services portion for you know very large company right? And so, you know, there were already like well-known products. It was like, okay, this is the product we're going to be using. Customer X by Z wants a store. This is what we've got. Here's the store app. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, it does. But you were still focused around it. Like WebSphere had, you know, a gazillion tables, right? And you had to be familiar (laughs) with those. Oh boy, didn't it? Right. It it was, it was crazy, but, but still it was kind of like the center of your universe, right? Like everything started there. And then you built out from it. Right. Like that, that was the, in most things, it seems like that's the way it's been. Now, Joe, you worked with, um, you know, a security company. Was that database centric or, or were you building tools that were more, you know, like, what did you see there?
2: Uh, surprisingly data centric. So a lot of it was about, um, kind of maintaining the customer's info. I was mainly on the backup side. So a lot of it was just about like maintaining, um, lists of computers and access and rules and, and um, what we do with those computers and when we do it and what we do with the backups and how we restore and all that stuff. And it, and it all, it was all built around a database.
0: Very cool. What, so you also, you worked on an augmented reality app at one point earlier, what was that? Was that database centric? I mean, because you were, you were doing a lot of things or was that more service like uh, get external data related?
1: No, that, that wasn't really, that was just more UI than anything else. Really? I mean the, the, yeah, uh, I definitely wouldn't call it data cause it was mobile. Um, so there wasn't like a whole lot of database about it at the time. Yeah. too.
0: Especially right.
1: Yeah. I mean, th- this was 10 years, not 10 years ago, uh, like seven years ago. um, so but it, yeah I don't think it falls into the classification of of the database first approach you know as you as you brought up here uh, in that particular example.
0: Okay. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up with this is it's it's fairly common for all of us. though. like, we've all worked on things where like the database is kind of what you start from, right? That's, you build your admin screens off of it, you build your workflows off of it, and and you're persisting everything back, you know, the tables, they kind of map to your classes in your application, and so on, right? Um, there's pitfalls to this. And it one of the things I can think of right now is like ORMs, you know, a lot of times people will take an ORM and they'll just run a thing that'll map it against every table in their database, right? So now you have a bunch of classes that correspond with those tables. And the beauty is now you can say, hey, I want to create a new lookup value here, right? And you'll just have an object.create and it's there. But the problem that you get into is there's no boundaries now. Right? Like everything has access to every single object in the system
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and you literally have no clear lines of it, it, the easy one for me to to think about is so you have a company, and let's say that it's an e-commerce thing because a lot of people understand it, so you have your thing where you're buying products. that's easy to see, right? but then behind the behind the scenes, you've got a customer service department. You've got an accounting department, you've got an inventory control department, you have all these things. And they've all got access to the same objects, because you've basically just created this ORM mapping and and anything can do anything to all of it. And that can be problematic.
2: Yeah, it's a nice clean layer, but uh, it's, it's very horizontal, right? You can't really slice that up well and say customer service can only, you know, it only makes sense for them to talk to these tables. So it's really easy to cheat and grab things from areas that you probably shouldn't be accessing directly.
0: And messing them up too, right? Like that's the problem is when there's different business rules, depending on, on what department you're working in, right? Like, uh, for instance a lot of ways that that customer service apps or or customer service software will try and get around a lot of the new like phishing scams and that kind of stuff right like social engineering is they might not even show you any information about a customer that's calling in. They might just be given a question and that customer has to answer it. And then they might be given another little piece of information and say, Hey, can you please tell me what this is? And then they have to type it in then they'll get a slice view of it. But if you have this ORM that's basically bringing back an entire customer object, there's no boundaries, right? Like you can see all of it and you can potentially modify it too. So that's one of the things that I see is sort of problematic in that approach. It just feels weird to
1: say that a pitfall to this approach is the ORM. <laughs> Am not, I the only one that feels like a little dirty about that being a pitfall? It, so
0: I don't think it's, I'm, it's not the ORM's fault. Yeah, right? I
1: understand what you're getting at. Right. Yeah.
0: It's just the fact that it's so easy to create that layer. Right. And once you create that layer, then everybody just starts using it, right? It's like having that big candy dish out there. Everybody's going to have their hand in it. And, you know, some people don't wash their hands and that's going to be a problem, right? <laughs> so,
1: what a gross <laughs> analogy. Uh, I
2: was thinking about, um, you've got a, an accounting app, a customer service app, and say like some sort of, you know, shipping, receiving app. And, you know, these are all different things. We get why they're different things, but it's kind of funny to think they could all be, um, you know, accessing the same monolithic data source the database and they've all got the same ORM, so they're all able to do it. And you can think about the kind of problems that might happen if customer service can do things like update inventory of an item, but so can shipping, receiving, and so can accounting. You I know, think problems are going to happen when you've got three different systems modifying the same things. And uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's definitely this big core layer, but I don't think it's necessarily the ORM's fault as much as is having a monolithic database at the center of it.
1: Well, that's what I was going to suggest is that it sounds kind of like what you're saying is the problem is it's the Lord of the Rings problem, right? It's one database to rule them all.
0: Well, is it the database the problem or is it the fact that you've only I mean, got maybe. one ORM layer, right? Like
1: yeah. what okay. if you were to
0: break that thing up and say, okay, uh, I have my, my accounting ORM or my, you know, interfaces for my accounting department. I have my interfaces for my you know, customer service department, et, et cetera, right? Instead of having one big one that everybody could just grab from, break those up.
2: So, well, Is this even a problem at all, though? Is this such a bad thing? But so, I think that's kind of what the the aim of the episode is to talk about, is to kind of talk about these issues, growing systems, and how we can kind of um, take a look at some of the, the, the ups and downs of these sort of things and figure out what to do about them.
0: Yeah, I mean... I would say that having one major one big blob of things that you can grab from and push to is a problem because you can't enforce any business rules, right? That's when you start getting into this world of spaghetti code, which we've all seen, right? It's like you said, typically your, your, um, your logic isn't based off of your class. It's based off the type of action or behavior that's supposed to happen or or data, right? So if a customer service person is touching an order, they can do something slightly different than what a customer is going to be able to do. A customer is just going to be able to put it in their cart and check out, right? If a customer service person is doing it, maybe they can go in and modify the price or give you a discount or do, do other things, right? So now you're going to have this control logic flow in your application that says, hey, if this was a customer service person that's logged in, then allow them to do this. If it was a user logged in, allow them to do this. And so you start creating these complex rules in your code to handle because all you have is this shopping cart object that everybody has access to. So now how do you enforce that stuff?
1: So it almost feels like you're describing like a, You know, a bunch of control flow type complexity and logic like ifs and if statements and switch statements is kind of what I'm imagining as you were saying, you know, uh, the example that you gave of customer service um, versus if you were to just contain that logic inside of individual classes and let them control the behaviors that are important to them, then maybe you're only... uh, know decision tree is based off of some factory that's deciding which type of the object is the appropriate one to return.
0: Right. So you you actually abstract that away a little bit and now you've created those boundaries that you need. And and I'm not saying that that you know you can't do this stuff. I'm just saying this is how I've seen systems organically grow, right? Like uh you know it might start off and people were writing direct SQL against the table, or if it was a MongoDB thing, then they were just writing their statements to go pull the documents out. Right. And then they look at it and they're like, Oh man, I have this stuff everywhere in my app now. Right. Like it's, it's spread throughout every tier in my application It's calling directly to the database to get data out. Now it's manipulating it. Oh, but now I need to share that and I can't. So then the next thing is, okay, well maybe let's take this SQL or this, you know, whatever this, this language is, out of my code, and let's put it into an ORM, right? So, it's like this natural evolution that I've seen many times, and there's these pitfalls along the way, because then you get an ORM, and you're like, oh man, this is beautiful, I can use objects to go get my data, and then all of a sudden, that's spread everywhere (laughs) into your code, right? So,
1: yeah, I mean you're not removing the problem, you're just changing how you access it. So in once in the first scenario you were accessing it via SQL cuz you were manually writing the SQL and in this next scenario you're accessing the same data but you're letting some other framework write the SQL for you and just returning back the objects to you.
0: So you've improved it, right? So instead of an ad hoc SQL thing that you might have to map to an object, mm-hmm. now at least you have a consistent thing, right? Like you have customer. Dot, you know, get by ID you know that that customer object is always going to be that particular type. Whereas when it was a SQL statement, you might have these DTOs all over the place. So you have improved a little, but you still have this problem to where it's sort of like crawling through your application, right? I mean, is that what we've seen?
2: Well, you hope it's just calling One Direction too. You know, if you've got stuff that can call other things, like if you're cheating around that ORM, calling SQL directly in addition to having that ORM, or if you've got the database, uh, you know, maybe some jobs running or something that actually call custom code, then now you've got some cycles and um, things get really hairy really quick.
1: Thoughts. Oh, sorry. I, I, you caught me cheating. I, I was looking ahead at something else.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's part of the problem that I've seen as they grow, right? You, you, you'd started out bad, then you grow to an ORM and then you get into the situation where it's like, well, man, how do I enforce these business rules? Right. And so now you have all these things that are reaching out to the ORM directly. So now you're tightly coupled because now so you said you have the the database to rule them all right you have the the lord of the rings it's right there in the middle and unfortunately now you're having performance problems now what are you going to do right Mm -hmm. because you have everything going directly to the orm that is also then reaching out directly to the database so you are tightly coupled all the way basically from your ui to your service call all the way into your database right and so now you have another problem. You know, how do I speed this thing up? What are you going to do? Well, if you want to add caching in the middle, now you got to create some more abstractions. You got to start breaking apart your code. It, and I mean, it just seems like this keeps going on and on, right?
1: Yeah. It almost kind of sounds like part of the problem that you're describing is not allowing access to those ORM objects, period. Right. Like that should be done through, uh, you know, some repository layer maybe, and that the actual objects being returned back to you just represent the specific, um, you know, case that you're trying to solve. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, what if we we've got our database right? It's at the core. We've got an ORM wrapped around that, and then we've got kind of like a business layer where I do our we do our permissioning stuff, our you know, just kind of logical decisions who can do what. And then we've got like a web service layer, or maybe a public API layer that kind of sits on top of that and uh, kind of controls the ingress and egress out of those, um, out of that business layer. And so that at the very top level, you know, your website, your clients, whatever, those guys only ever see the layer beneath like the, that, that um, public API or, or um, I guess it doesn't have to be public, your API or your web services. And so Later along the lines, you can split that monolith database into different things, or you can use cache instead of the database or whatever, and it's all kind of transparent to the client. Sort
0: of. I would add one more layer in there, though. So you said basically you have your database, then your ORM, then your business layer, right? In between that ORM and the business layer, I think I would have the repository. So basically what he was just saying, because then at that point, your ORM is what's talking to whatever the persistence layer is behind the scenes, whether it's a database or or whatever else, right? Um, but the repository is what's basically going to populate objects with that data. And then your business layer only cares about talking to that repository. It knows nothing about the persistence layer. So that ORM knows about the persistence layer. And if you're using something like Entity Framework, then you could be using like, what is it, Link to Entities, I think is what
1: well, where I was really thinking though is that instead of allowing entity framework to creep throughout your entire code base, right? You have this, you know, repository, some some layer of abstraction uh above it that you go through and then that way depending on what the use case is you might have multiple customer objects throughout your code base or customer classes throughout your code base, but depending on the namespace, they could mean different things. So you gave the example of customer service and maybe in the customer service example, that customer class doesn't have all of the same data that say uh, accounting might see or that the order might, uh, you know, that the order fulfillment might use or something like that. That's kind of where I was thinking of.
2: Mm -hmm. No, I agree. So check this out. Um, I was just doing a little Googling. I remembered a diagram I'd seen a little while back about, uh, I think it was Windows 8, but it had some nice kind of slices. And so I was just Googling around and I found a nice diagram of the Linux architecture. And it's kind of like what we described, except at the very core is the hardware. And this is the memory, the CPU, you know, the hard drive, all that stuff are these big, wide open pools. But on top of that, you've got a kernel, which is kind of like uh, similar to our um our uh, ORM layer that we're talking about, we've got a shell on top of that. And then we've got these programs that run on top of the shell. And those each can have their own dedicated memory space that they can look, and they can't reach into other people's memory spaces. And so that, like that's the first part where like these divisions start. So up until then, you've just got kind of concentric circles. And then once we get to the actual application layer, things get split up because you can run in different users, can be running different applications. And that's where we've got silos. Like, uh, you know, user A can't reach into user B's um, Process memory and pull stuff out. You know, that's a huge security problem because it happens. But, um, real hammer. But, uh, <laughs> you know, those are the kind of things that we're trying to avoid. And it sounds like it's a uh, direct correlation to the kind of architectures that we're talking about. It, it makes sense.
0: I mean, if, if anybody's had to do it right, it's basically the OS's, right? Uh, so here's my question, right? So we've already talked about you started out as this big monolithic reach everything thing, right? You just spread your code all throughout. That gets nasty, and did, then
1: you—did sp- you just say it was a thing? Thing,
0: did I? <laughs> I might have. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Very possible. So here's my question: If you're building an application from scratch, do you build these layers in directly, immediately, knowing that the potential problems you're going to run into? Because this is the big issue as a developer, right? We talk it, and we've said it—I don't know how many times on this show—build your MVP your MVP might be stupid, simple, right? Like you literally just hard code in your connection to the database and you go get data, right? Where do you, where do you draw the line of what is the right place to start?
2: Uh, First, you spend two years writing documents and having all day long meetings, right? (laughs) Uh,
1: You you waterfall. You forgot about writing tickets.
2: Uh, yeah, well, so many tickets
1: there needs to be a ticket somewhere in there
0: but seriously if you were going to start something today what what would be your bare minimum layers that you would introduce
2: I, it really depends on the kind of app like, if i'm doing something in Java, like a, a lot of times i try to avoid having a server at all um, i don't do the serverless thing because i'm not even trying to like solve so like my first thing is like how can i even get this um as somewhere that i don't even have to host it like i want to be able to host this on github.io so i don't want to have any sort of back end so uh it really depends on the kind of app you're trying to build that's a good point
1: so he hardcodes all of his data in javascript (laughs) arrays that's
2: right yeah (laughs) and if i'm building the website um it's you know wordpress is taking care of that for me so
0: (laughs) okay business level application do you have data that you need to persist you have a UI, you have a server layer. What's, wh- where do you start? Where do you end? Like today, like based off the knowledge that we've done as developers over time, like before we get into like our next topics and in some upcoming episodes where we talk about domain-driven design and onion architecture and all that, before we go there, just thinking out loud, like what, what are the layers that you would definitely want to have in place before you really got rolling?
2: Uh, definitely. I, I tend to think data first still. So I think, uh, you know, if I'm going to have a database and I'm going to want to start doing my stuff there and putting my tables there and kind of, I think it's the cheapest to move columns around at that point. You know, it's easy to make change relationships and stuff without having to do a lot of expensive UI work and middleware stuff. So, um, that's where I like to start. And from there, if I think I need an ORM, that would be second. Um, if it's going to be something small, then I would probably just skip that. But I think in most cases, uh, if it was a, a good-sized app, I would probably want some sort of layer there that was well thought out. And then I would probably start thinking API, whether that's, I call it a business layer, or I just kind of think of it as like web services, or even if it's just a DLL, like that's kind of my next go-to. And then the rest is all just dependent on the clients I want. Okay. What about you, Mike?
1: No, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I was thinking of something very similar to that.
0: I think, I think for me, I'm really close to that. The only difference for me is having that ORM with a repository on top of it before that business layer.
1: Yeah, see, I think that's, I feel like that's something that would be uh, refactored in eventually.
0: It could. The only thing that I'm always worried about with that is when you have an ORM in place and you start reaching out to that directly, that's typically a pretty tight coupling right like
1: but again we were talking about you know like this is your MVP right and and so reaching out to the database doesn't necessarily have to be your hand wrote SQL it could be you have a stored uh, procedure which could still be used by an ORM by the way so it's not necessarily that that's throwaway code it prevents you from refactoring later for later use by an ORM.
0: No, it's true. You're very true. Like like I said, I think I would throw in the repository. I'm not saying it's necessary, and it might be overkill for that. You know, it, it's very possible it is, but I like that separation because then you can also test that data more easily, right? Because if you have the ORM, you can't test it. If it because now it's an integration. It's no longer a unit test. If you put that repository in the middle, you can then mock that data. You can create an interface for a customer repository, right? You can't you can't mock an interface for an ORM customer because it needs to connect to some sort of persistence. And, and so that's kind of where I'm going. Like if you have entity framework and it's and it's for SQL Server, you're tied to SQL Server. You're tied to a database at that point.
1: Yeah. You know, kind of- with the example that we were talking about, we had skipped the ORM. Right? Like you know the OrM was something you might bring in later
0: oh uh, no the repository yeah. is what you said you would have the orm
1: no 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 what Joe said and oh. I said that I was along the same lines was that you might skip the oRM to begin with oh and so oh. in that case you're not tied to you you know you're not necessarily your objects aren't necessarily tied into it you I mean you have some part that might be doing some sort of procedure calls but yeah i mean i understand what you're saying in regards to testability though and that would be a huge factor but another thing that i was thinking of as you were describing that that would be a huge part of the decision cycle is well like realistically how much time do i think i'm going to have for any refactoring right like you know if it's if i don't think i'm going to have a lot of time then yeah that's definitely going to uh change some of the decision making right
0: yeah, I mean, none of it's an easy thing. Like, I mean, when you sit down and really think about it, it, and this is again, you know, we've joked about it. This is why I'm horrible about doing some of this stuff on my own, is because I sit down and I'm like, well, if I was going to write the perfect app, how would I do it? And, and I'm never trying to write anything that I'm going to release to the world. It's more about, you know, if I do this, what problem does it solve? What problem does it introduce? Because every layer you add adds complexity. And it adds a ton of boilerplate code, right? Like that's probably the thing that I dislike the most about adding these layers is it's almost always boilerplate.
1: But we're talking about this in regards to like, you know, a brand new Mm -hmm. uh, greenfield application. But I mean, we've talked about this in the past as it relates to adding in new features to a brownfield application where, you know, even in that scenario, I've gone with the uh, data first approach to make sure like, okay, you know how I want the the those data structures to even look like and how I want them to be returned and what I need to have returned before I even bother to work with a uh m- you know middle layer api or a front end ui
0: yeah that's
2: true i mean oh go ahead say I will say that I do think it's pretty telling that uh, we're programmers um, that we all started with the data like I think if you talk to like any kind of design firm out there in the world and ask them what the first thing to do they would be like wireframe wireframes and then we move to like mock-ups or something and make sure that the client's happy with it we're solving the needs that they expect and this is the product they, they expect to deliver so when we talk about MVP like I think that we're kind of taking for granted that we're going to get the data right. And then we kind of know what the front end is going to look like because, you know, we're going to be using Angular or React or something. We kind of know what grids look like, you know. So we're not even thinking about that that much. But uh, if you're really talking about designing some sort of new business system, like there are a ton of companies out there that would totally start in the exact opposite direction and work in.
0: You know what's interesting about that? You remember we went to a meetup. I don't remember if you were here, Joe, at the time or not. But we went to the one where they did the interview. The live interview thing, right? right? We've talked about this in the
1: past, yeah.
0: So, one thing that he said that he loved to do is he would ask somebody, all right, so where are you going to start? And if they started at the database, then he'd throw a wrench at them that was Mm going to make it hard for the UI. And if you started at the UI, then he was going to throw a wrench at them that was going to make it hard for the database thing. And it's true. Like, if you come at it from the UI approach, you can totally mess up some things that are going to be driving your back end. If you start at the back end, you could totally make assumptions that are going to make your UI really a pain to use. So it should be a collaborative thing. Like you should really find out what the need is, and and try and start from there. Right. But it, it's a really interesting approach on that.
1: Another approach, though, that I was thinking about, like that I have done too. And I'm sure like you guys tell me if you've done this too, but there have been times where like, I'll have an idea of like some screen that, you know, or something that I need to add in or create. And uh, I'll just, you know, put dummy data in there just to, so I can even get a feel for like, what data do I need? What might I even need? Let me just create like a, a, you know, a, a skeleton of what this thing should look like. And then I can go back and write, you know, the, the data structures to match it and come back to the middle layer, uh, you know, the server layer to, to return that actual data.
0: Yep. Right. Yep. You know, one thing, I mean, we've talked about some pitfalls and some of the things that happen. you know, one of the things that I do like about the database first approach is because that is your source, that is your key kind of where, where the life of your application lives. If you need to make changes, you typically have fairly easy access to do it, right? Like if you're adding new columns or new features or whatever, you can even migrate that data, right? Like if you need to do things like that, it's fairly, I don't want to say easy to do, but you have a you have a known path as opposed to, um, which we haven't talked about, we'll get into, if you're doing something like the code first approach, where it kind of modifies your schema for you on the fly and that kind of thing, like... Usually that's a little bit hairier. Wouldn't, would you agree? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, I can't really speak to that approach though. Cause I've never really gone that approach, which shame on me, right? Like I,
0: that approach scares me. It, yeah. it really does. Like the whole idea that you change your code and all of a sudden it changes your schema. Like, Well, that, that I mean, because when you me. say
1: code first, like you're specifically talking about a particular, you know, framework and, and tool to do that, where that, you know, as you, in your code, it's going to create that versus the scenario that I described a moment ago, that that kind of goes in line with what Joe was describing with, you know, depending on who's, uh, who you're asking the question to, you know, if like just mocking out something and even getting a feel for like, you know, what data you might want on the screen—that's not what you're describing no. when you talk about code first.
0: Yeah, code first is you write your classes, and based off that, it will create your persistence
2: layer for you, right? Um, yeah,
0: That's if you're sc- doing
2: if you're doing test-driven development, then I would think you'd want to be code first, like all the way. So you would think, like, okay, I need to add a new column to this grid. Let me first change my API, get those tests passing and then I take it to the UI. I
1: mean, I don't know if we want to skip ahead to talking about that, though, but because that sounds like it would have its own pitfalls. Like, go back to that scenario that I described where you have multiple customer objects, each in its own namespace. Well, if the code is creating it, and these look like different objects from a class, or, you know, different classes... Or let me say this again, they look like different data structures from a class perspective, then it might think, "Oh, I got to have different schemas with different tables to map to these things. And it might not understand that uh, oh, these are the act- these actually map to the same record. It's just business rules are preventing all of the data or, you know, coming back to in certain scenarios. Right. Yeah. And maybe somebody has a better example of that. Like I said, like I, I've never bothered with that approach. I
0: haven't either. Cause it scares me. I, I'm aware of it, but like, it just seems like a bad idea. <clears throat> so here, here's another thing is what we're talking about typically ends up being a monolith, right? Like when you, when you go this route, when you start at your database, it, It kind of grows into this monolithic application, which you hear a lot of things out there about nowadays where it's like, oh, monoliths are bad. And, you know, everything should be microservices and and, and this and this and this. Right. And I'm kind of wondering what you guys think about that. Is it such a bad thing to to get into that monolithic
2: realm? I don't want to start with microservices. That seems very not agile. It, it's definitely overhead. There's no doubt about it. And so that's not the direction I'm starting from unless I know that, you know, we're going to be doing something big. And if we're doing something that big, well, chances are there's already something in place that we're going to be kind of modifying and slicing off chunks of. So at that point we can think about going the microservice route, but I, I definitely don't think microservices uh, first, but I'm also old. So, you know,
0: I agree with that though. And, and you know Why? There's two reasons, at least in my thinking, is one, typically when you try and start with microservices first, you don't know some of the... Maybe the domain isn't clear to you yet as to exactly what that microservice needs to do. So if you start out that way, you end up just modifying the heck out of them until you get to a place where it needs to be. But the second thing for me is those things don't come for free, right? Like when you start breaking apart your architecture like that, there's a lot of things you have to make sure that thing's alive, uh, you, you know, because it's separate now from your system. So if there's a failure there, you need to have checks in place to make sure that if it does fail, that you're that you're gracefully reacting to it. Like, there's a lot of additional things that happen when you start breaking these out into separate chunks,
2: right? Yeah, deployments get a lot tougher, way harder.
1: Yeah, so maybe not microservices, but definitely micro uh parts within the same application right
0: good abstractions yes and i think that's the key right is if you have good abstractions and it sets you up for being able to do things like microservices later right but it's funny i listened to a podcast and i can't i can't remember which one it was but one of the guys that worked on um what is it? Basecamp, I think is what it's called. Uh, one of the biggest Ruby on Rails things out there. And that dude was actually arguing for monoliths. He's like, look, man, when you break things apart, you complicate things, right? Not everybody needs to be at scale of Twitter and LinkedIn and those guys. So if you don't need it, why make everything more difficult, right? Like we've run into the problems where you break apart, you know, you have NuGet packages for your application." And now you're managing, you know, ten different projects that all kind of have to sync up into the right place. That can be it could be
2: hard, right? Yeah, I want to listen to that podcast now. I've seen articles uh, about the and I've heard the joking jokingly named Majestic Monolith. Um, but I haven't heard anything. So if if anyone has any recommended resources, I'd love to hear it.
0: Man, I'll have to go back and find it. I don't I don't remember which podcast it was. It's been a while since I listened to it, but it was the guy who actually wrote the main app. And, you know, he said he, I, I don't remember how many millions of users are actually in that system, but it was massive. Right. And he's like, "Hardware is cheap, man. <laughs> you know, if, if you need more scale, add more servers, how much money are you going to spend rewriting your software to be, you know, little bite-sized chunks that can be scaled out a billion times? So it was an interesting take. And it's one that I think is important that people realize is, you know, sometimes there's value
2: in having everything in one place at a time. It doesn't so mean here's a you, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm better for this. Uh, I was just looking at the article about a majestic uh, monolith written by the guy that you were talking about DHH. Um, and they've got a nice little definition here that I thought was applicable Um, It says, what is a majestic monolith exactly? It's an integrated system that collapses as many unnecessary conceptual models as possible. Eliminates as much needless abstraction as you can swing a hammer at. It's a big big fat no to distributing your system lest it truly prevents you from doing what really needs to be done.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. You have a link for that? We need to drop that in the show notes. Yep, sure do. All right, cool. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. And no, I like that. And also, can we, can we please stop making spas for everything? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dude, I
2: like spas. I like spas when we need spas, but let's, you know, like there's nothing wrong with web pages in a lot of scenarios.
1: I kind of agree with Joe on this one, man.
2: I man. It was so nice back in the day. People I, still call them pages. In
0: fact, I don't miss postbacks. Like I hated postbacks. <laughs> I didn't I didn't like when you go to refresh a page, it's like, hey, you're about to resubmit this form information. Are you sure you like, dude, as soon as I as soon as I got to the point where I could write a single page application, I was so excited. I was like, man, this is because then the other thing too is is people are always worried about server hits, right? Like, how many pages can my server do, you know, or or support or sustain? And I was like, man, if you go to a spa, it's just JSON going back and forth or, or just little tiny bits of data, right? Like your your web server almost just becomes a transport for for data, right? It's almost your middle tier at that point.
2: Yeah, if only we could cast or redundant parts of a website and so only the parts that need to change would actually change between page views.
0: Yeah, if only.
2: Sweet. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you're totally right. There's a reason why kind of spas evolved. It's just uh, uh, sometimes I miss them. And I, it's kind of funny to see um, a lot of uh, modern apps now kind of um, trying to recreate pages, which just kind of is frustrating to me because in a way they are like kind of little isolated apps and there's benefits to that. And so I, I miss that sometimes. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping they come back.
1: Well, into, you know what? I, I, I'm with you there because like it was like each page was its own uh, SRP. <laughs> right yeah so so it was really nice you didn't have anything to worry about and then when we went to spas then it's like okay now this one thing has to know about every page
0: well i think i think it has gone too far with spas for sure but like for instance if if you go into google analytics you guys should do this if you go in there and you click around for some of it you'll be in the same page you'll be in the same app if you click to something that is outside of that it'll take you to another it's almost like a mini spa right which which is
1: kind of cool so i'm curious then if we've gone too far now at what point where did we hit the sweet spot and then it was like before we realized it you know things went to plaid
2: yeah i don't know oh i know oh okay yeah like jQuery 1.2.1 was the peak. Everyone was so happy with jQuery, <laughs> jQuery everywhere and it just worked great. And then all of a sudden we started thinking no, oh, no, we need some for, some frameworks here cuz you know, we don't want all these dollar signs. And that's when things started heading back down. So jQuery was like the golden age of web programming.
0: I I Somewhat disrespectfully disagree. (laughs) Somewhat disrespectfully.
1: (laughs) Somewhat disrespectfully disagree.
0: Dumb manipulation should die. And that (laughs) is why jQuery was never the epitome of where it should have been because inevitably it was like, oh, if you click this, we want to add a row to this table down here. And then it was like, you know. Get element by D, add a TR, add some T, dude. No, <laughs> no, no, I man.
2: I loved it. And all the little UI stuff you could do, all the little, uh, what, like the plugins or whatever. And like that was that was truly a good time. Like 1.2. Whatever it was, I think it was around 2007, man. Like we were, I was at a web small web firm, boutiques, uh, websites, man. We were rocking and rolling, doing all sorts of crazy stuff, just like a dollar dot something. And then we like dot something else and all of a sudden it's just things flying around everywhere. We were we were calling Ajax left uh, to right. which is so, amazing.
0: I, I actually remember the first time one of my friends was like, hey, I'm using this thing called XHTTP request. And I was like, what is that mess? And then all of a sudden it yep. became a big thing, right? It, because you remember the old school way of doing that stuff? Okay. Iframes and posting to hidden iframes. Like that was just frames. Oh yeah. Frames. You could totally do it that way too. Yeah. So those are the good old times, but yeah. So at any rate, I I thought it was kind of neat to walk down this path of the, the, what we've seen as we've come along. Right. And, and kind of where you end up is, is you have this thing that works. It's kind of a pain to maintain because it, it's not been abstracted over time. And it's, you know, it's it's just how it grows, right? It's how it's how software organically grows. So,
1: yeah. So, with that, let me take a moment to say that if uh, if you have already taken the time out of your busy schedule to leave us a review, know that we greatly appreciate that you did that. And if you haven't, uh, let me just take a moment to speak directly to you and beg you to head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And uh, you can see Alan over there begging for your review. And you can uh, find links to Stitcher or iTunes. And if you have some other uh, podcast aggregator that you use that you think that we should be mentioning there that uh, you find great reviews on, let us know that too. But we would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to leave us a review.
0: Hey, speaking of, somebody did bring up one. Wasn't it called Podbean? I, yes yes Podbean actually has one so we we found out about that recently so you know uh there's another source <laughs> and, and i think they actually have reviews on there man we show up twice there too What what is that about
1: <laughs> we're that good that uh we're doubly awesome we Appar- should be listened to twice
0: yeah apparently so yeah at any rate check that out and and thank you for those that do leave reviews
1: And so with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show, survey says. All right, so last episode, we asked, why did you start programming? And your choices were needed to fulfill a business need, wanted to personalize my MySpace theme, took a class in school and thought it was awesome to make games, and lastly, I like getting paid to sit. I think that 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 answer was really for the honest people. If, if you're being <laughs> honest with yourself and with everyone else. All right. So,
0: let's see. It's his turn. But, but hold on. Did anybody, like, age us because of the MySpace thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you
1: know, I think it would have been really bad if we'd said Friendster, but... Ooh. Okay. Yeah.
2: Geo Cities, baby. Not that I know.
1: <laughs> Geo <Right? Cities. laughs> What's that? What? Don't yeah. lie. <laughs> no, I know I have no idea. You know
2: Angel <laughs> Fire Tripod. In my
1: youth. I have uh I'm so young and uh, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, okay. So let's go on with this. Yes. Uh Joe, you're up first.
2: All right. I'm gonna say uh thirty-three percent to make games
1: to make games
2: 33% mm. man this this one
0: i actually have no idea on i'm going to say i like to get paid to sit and we're going to go with 25
1: 25 Yes. all right these are prices right rules yes i lose these so. a lot <laughs> <laughs> by a dollar <laughs> so if you go over you automatically lose. And uh, I'm sorry, Alan. Oh, come on. Yeah, no, Joe clobbered you on this one. Man, what was yeah. it? Uh, <clears throat> so he won doubly. To make games is actually the most popular answer at wow. 33%. Oh, wow. 33, really? He, he hit it on the head, yeah. You cheated. I'm thinking <laughs> he did, too. You <laughs> voted right beforehand or something. Like, well, what's up?
2: Well it sounds like only three people voted. So what?
1: no. <laughs> so you
0: know what's curious about this though is when we did the previous survey where we said, Hey, what floats your boat, right? Right. It was almost all business. Right. And but yet what got people into it is they wanted to make a skin for, you know, I knows? guess it's
1: I guess it's business up front, uh games in the back. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> business development up here yeah
2: yeah and you need to write the next big article it goes around reddit and hacker news like the mullet programmer
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right so uh with that let's get into the next survey for this episode which is how fast is your personal internet connection so your choices are dsl speeds are amazing oh less than five megabits or less than or equal to twenty-five, and then fifty, seventy-five, a hundred, or you're greater than a hundred megabits, or it's fiber for the win at one gigabit per second.
0: I have a feeling I'm going to have some envy after the results. <laughs> yes, <Yeah? laughs> I, I, maybe, yeah. maybe.
1: It, either of you already have like an idea where you think? Do you want to say what you think where you think this one might land?
0: I think most people are going to be
2: under twenty-five. Oh, really? Yeah oh i don't know man if the the, uh, international uh, vote comes out yeah it's gonna be like two gigabit
1: per second we're gonna be crying is it really that high? i don't know what countries are we
2: in i was gonna say hmm
0: yeah no i i think most of our listeners are u.s based i i'm gonna say less than 25 i mean it depends on what cities they live in yeah i think so i think so unless unless everybody just happens to answer from San Francisco and then I'm screwed. So. <laughs> <laughs> but so what are you thinking, Joe? I'm
2: going to say under 75.
0: Really? What about you? Yep. Uh
1: yeah, I really don't have an idea. I really expect everybody to be closer to like 75 or above, honestly. Well, <laughs> at least among this community. Like I'm going to be surprised if you're right. I will actually find that to be very interesting and curious. Well, the only reason
0: I say is outside of true metropolitan areas, like it's it's typically way lower. So uh, unless we get mostly people from major like Atlanta, San Fran, you know, Dallas, Texas, that kind of thing, I think it'll be lower. I sure. think just aggregate.
1: I, I will agree with that. But again, yeah. this is what I'm saying. Like, you know, if the if the conversation is, you know, Speeds around, you know, for for average people all over the country, then yeah, your answer may be more likely. But I think among developers, though, it's going to be higher.
0: I think why I, I think our listeners are lonely, and that's the only reason they're listening to us. Or maybe they're going to prove me wrong. <laughs> wow. like, no, no, no! Wow! <laughs> no. Wow! Good like
1: wow. lord! Major diss there. I didn't
0: mean it like that. I meant the reason why they're listening to a podcast is to have that developer community because they're not ah. living in one like you, Joe. <laughs>
1: that's what I meant. Jeez. <laughs> As you listen to the sweet soldier jams yes. of Coding Blocks. not just kidding (laughs) (laughs)
0: wow Uh, that was totally not right (laughs) that came out wrong (laughs) so yeah i don't know we'll see that's going to be an interesting one all right so you know what really stinks joe is like when you're sitting around and and something goes wrong and you spend your entire day debugging something that's not that never happened to you right
2: Oh, all the time. (laughs) It's been (laughs) been way too much time trying to tack down uh, little things that end up being five minute fixes.
0: Right. But it took you hours to get there. Right. Absolutely. And if only there was some debugging or logging or something like that, that could, you know, at least give you back some of your programming day. Oh yeah. It is. It it sounds like something that, that we might have a little bit of information on here, huh?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You should check out our new sponsor airbreak.io, which is a full-stack error monitoring tool that alerts you to errors in your software, helps you diagnose and fix them. And so, it basically means no more wasted time searching log files and uh, more time actually writing and shipping great code.
0: Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, it really does do that, right? You can you have plugins for super popular frameworks like WordPress, you can plug it into a homegrown application like a .NET, PHP. like th- There's tons of different things here that they offer, and they even have their own dashboard that you can go in and look at you know, across your different applications. Hey, what are the errors that are coming in? How frequently are they? You can even inspect them, right?
2: Yep, you can tie them back to releases. You can get a lot of information about when they started, how frequent they've been. Um, just a lot of really great information. You can even um, add comments. You can... Um, review them. You can, I mean, just sky's the limit. Yeah. It's, it's
0: pretty amazing stuff. So again, they're one of our new sponsors here. You should definitely go check them out at getairbreak.com slash CB for your free 30 day trial. And don't we have something really cool to announce that we started with off here at the beginning of the show?
1: Oh, I was hoping to do the announcer voice. Let's do this.
0: Let's do this.
1: Sign up at Airbreak.com slash CB for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card. It's a completely free trial, and you'll be shocked by how much time it saves you. Again, that's getairbreak.com slash CB.
2: Yeah, so go ahead. What are you about to say? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. It's and, and just as we kind of talked about earlier, it's really easy to hook up. The documentation is fantastic. All the actual, um, like, yeah. Uh, 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 APIs and SDKs for various programming languages and platforms are up on GitHub and the documentation is fantastic. You can get this set up in minutes. No joke. Uh, I got a .NET site. I got a WordPress site hooked up in literal minutes. A tied releases in and I was able to in- instantly start seeing the types of crashes that uh, were bringing um, my sites down <laughs> and... uh Well, that's a little bit embarrassing for me, you might uh, be crashing too and not even knowing it. So you should sign up for the trial and have a chance to win that $500 Amazon gift card.
1: Hey, can we join? Oh, wait, sorry. Right.
2: (laughs) I don't think so. I think uh, we might have a little problem there. It might be a little revolt.
1: Okay. (laughs) That makes sense.
2: All right, so picking
0: back up where we left off. So we talked about the ways that we've been doing things over the years. And there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of things lessons learned since all this has been going down, right? Like software is becoming more and more prevalent. And so better ways to do it and ways to maintain it now are are out there. And so this was kind of lead to this whole purpose was to lead into some of the topics that are going to be coming up such as domain driven design onion architecture, microservices and how they fit in. And and we've all somewhat like I, I know Mike you've looked at domain driven design a little bit. Uh, Joe, did you have a chance to look at it much yet?
2: No, crazy week.
0: It, it it's a pretty small topic, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's only like a 600 page book,
0: right? It, there's it's it's amazing when you think about how much and how long we've all been doing this stuff and how much there still is to learn and know. Right? Like is is there another profession on the planet to where you have to to stay up as much as this one? Medical. Maybe. Law. Law Maybe. probably. Yeah. Law I mean
1: those those two professions I see that you definitely have to spend a lot of time in your uh, you know, quote free time staying up to date with whatever, you know, current laws are or current medical practices are and medicine and, uh, medications that are out there.
0: But yeah, I mean, it's a constant learning thing. Like it's, it's amazing. And, and so one of the things that we do want to talk about is domain driven design because it, it, we're not going to go into details here, but some of the problems that we talked about with these boundaries, right? Like having an ORM, that's an entire layer, uh, That's one of the problems that things like domain-driven design solves because you're trying to solve problems for a specific area, right? Like we talked about customer service or accounting, you know, you think about things in terms of what do these people do, you know, what types of jobs, what types of behaviors do they have? So that's really interesting. And then I think after we go through that one, we're going to talk about the onion architecture, which I think, Joe, you do know a little bit about that one too, right? Yep.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot of really cool examples. I think that's gonna be really good. I think they're all gonna be really good episodes, but I'm particularly excited about this one.
0: Yeah, the onion architecture. Have you looked into this one, Mike?
1: No, I haven't got into that. I've been focused on just catching up on uh, DDD. Yeah,
0: the uh, the onion architecture one's gonna be fun, and 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 we want to mention these things because in case you want to get ahead of it a little bit, so that when we get into these conversations, you'll at least be a little bit familiar with it, so you'll be able to follow along because there's gonna be some deep dives (laughs) in there. I mean, just domain driven design, like you said there's a six hundred page book. there's hours of videos out there on plural site,
1: um, many websites, yeah, lots of reading. It really made me feel dumb, <laughs> yeah like there there's this uh quote in one of the videos that was like a, I think a Socrates quote or something like that that was something along the lines of the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know mm-hmm. and yeah this definitely was absolutely in that category. Yeah, I definitely walked away feeling just dumb.
0: Yeah, it, it's it, it's like drinking through a fire hose is what they say, right? Like there's so much information and it's hard to digest all at once. So,
1: yeah, you're like, "Why didn't I already know this? Why wasn't like why why did I wait this n- till now?"
0: Yep. So, and then we're also going to I, I think after those, we'll probably touch on microservices because we we sort of touched on it here a little bit in the fact that it's one of those buzzwords that bugs me because Yeah. Really? For one reason, because everybody's like, "Oh, you need to be doing microservices. If you're not doing microservices, you're doing it wrong." And it's like, man, there's there's overhead to that kind of stuff.
1: But I think that could be said for everything, right? Like every buzzword that's out there, people seem to overdo it.
0: That's true, right? That's true. I'll give you that.
1: Like I mean, we've joke, we've had our solid jokes too, right? right. And you know, (laughs) you never write anything. Yeah, (laughs) if you go too far, you have nothing but a, a solution full of. interfaces (laughs) right i mean you could overdo everything
0: yeah it it is interesting i mean the the whole problem of scale i mean did anybody have this like thinking about this from when we started programming 10 15 years ago anybody ever really worry about scale like was it really a big deal back then
1: well no because you didn't have the networks that we have today right you were, you the know, speed. you had, you had single, you know, your application sat on single instances, you know, yeah, it just, you just didn't have the same kind of concurrent users that you have today.
0: You know what is part of the problem? The fact that mobile is what it is now. I mean, think about that, right? If so back in the day, you really didn't have to worry about your web server unless you were a Microsoft or a Google or somebody like that because we have 56 bod modems, right? 56 K Bob modems. Like how hard could you actually hit
2: a server at the time? But now go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you're good.
0: You're good. No, no.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I think it's one of those things where the tools have gotten better. And so we're doing more with it, you know, 10 years ago, Um, you know, there are a lot of eyeballs on the internet, but they're all going to a lot of like static web pages for, you know, John Deere or whatever. But now I'm sure if you go to John Deere, it's probably like a fully fledged, like e-commerce site, you know, and social network. So um, things have gotten a lot more complicated and we were expected to do a lot more with it. And so we're having to constantly push the envelope and the growth of hardware slowed down a lot too. So we can't just constant, you know, we can't just count on buying a new server every two years.
1: I I remember it too being different in that, from what you were describing, the problem wasn't necessarily that you were worried about bogging down the resources of the server from like a server, uh, from like a a CPU or memory kind of utilization point of view. It was the network utilization. So like large images, it was, you know, image compression was huge, right? Because, Because you didn't have a fast network connection nowhere near what you had today. If you did start having you know, a quote high you know number of concurrent users. It was the network congestion that was your bottleneck and your problem. On your what ten I base T
0: network connection. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you think about it now. I wonder if like the advent of the smartphone has really sort of pushed this thing forward faster than what anybody would have thought. Because think about it, man. Your phone is constantly pinging services all day long. If you have apps installed, you're getting notifications on your phone, it's because it's hitting the server, you know, constantly trying to find out, hey, did I get anything new? Did I get anything new? And, you know, you think about the Twitters and LinkedIn's of the world. I mean the amount of traffic these places actually have to serve and stay up. Dude, I'll never forget like I play fantasy football. I'll never forget a few years ago like ESPN had done this like major rewrite and they were having like this this launch. Dude The first football Sunday, everything died. And I was like, they didn't expect this? Like, (laughs) really? But, I mean, it's just kind of exacerbated because now you see that on your phone. Like, literally, you stare at the phone and you see your numbers updating every five seconds or every second. So, I don't know. It's interesting. I think a lot of the problems that we face now are just the, the level of accessibility, plus the network bandwidth, plus just the sheer number of people that have access to it now.
1: Well, I mean, definitely in the last decade, scale has become a much bigger concern because there's more devices, There's people have more access to it, so going to your cell phone point of view, it's not just the cell phone, it's just uh, necessarily, it's not necessarily the device so much as it is the fact that you have this device with you that's constantly accessing, so there's more access to it from more places, by more devices, more people, so definitely scale has become a larger factor. You no, know, I'm actually
2: looking at I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> I'm been <no>. terrible tonight. <laughs> no, sorry <you> everybody.
1: <laughs> no, I was just going to say like here's a crazy thought, you know, I I just it didn't even dawn on me, but when I said it, but I just said the last 10 years 10 years ago was when the iPhone was introduced.
0: Oh, 2007, that's right. Ouch. Man.
2: Yeah, things well, have uh, changed. Well, you guys have been um, talking stuff I've been designing my own tractor on Johndeere.com <laughs> you can actually customize I mean yeah, I was just thinking like five years ago like you would kind of hope like maybe home depot.com has a store locator I hope so or maybe I can find a phone number to call and now like that thing better tell me the freaking aisle and the store that I'm in that it picked up from my location. Right. But, yeah, I'm seriously uh, designing. I'm picking my chair out right now on my $48,000 tractor. <laughs> oh, validation. Go to go to conflicts. Uh-oh. The UI is really smooth. I can tell they're doing some definitely some fancy UI stuff. Like, you know, this is crazy. Do they have pages or is it a spa? It looks like pages to me. <laughs> they're nope, doing it's it wrong. Not. It's, not? <laughs> it's not? It's a spa. That's beautiful. I've used source <laughs> in <it's> seven lines. <laughs> <laughs> We're winning, <laughs> yeah, man. When, when, I, when I, I'm old fashioned compared to John Deere, uh, so there's something wrong here.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. Wait, where I can't find where you can build it. That's
2: interesting, uh,
1: but uh, yeah, of course, there's a configurator, right? So, yep.
0: yeah, I, I found myself at uh tire like putting rims on my vehicles, right? So, like, what would those 24s look like on that little car, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Uh, man, <laughs> 24s. Yeah, there's no rubber on them. Uh, there's no room for it. There's no suspension <laughs> right. on it either, right? So, anyways, yeah. I mean, hopefully, uh, go ahead. I
2: was just gonna say, um, I'm really excited about these topics because for a long time, especially with Clean Code, we've been really focused on like the very little parts, like um the tiniest bits of coding. You know, what to name your variables, what to name your functions, how many lines should be in your functions? Should you comment? Should you not? Should you test? And so it's kind of cool to be able to like zoom back and kind of talk about um, higher level stuff. And I think at least for me, like I spent a lot more time struggling with these issues than I do with uh, the, the smaller kind of micro stuff that we've been talking about. So it's kind of cool. That's and because everybody ignores us know. that part.
1: Right. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> well, you get
2: the little stuff, right? It's like Van Halen with the M&Ms, right? You get the little stuff, right? Then eh, the big stuff is probably good too.
0: Well, you know, one of the interesting things that you say about this, and I pointed this out, I think in our Slack community, was it's it's one of the hardest things when you're trying to set up an entire application because you get tied up in so many things right like we even talked about if you're one of those people that set up what what was it MongoDB db that got hit recently where everybody oh, right. had their default passwords like the sheer amount of stuff that you have to do to even stand an application up it, it can be overwhelming even for people that have done it a hundred times, right? Like there's just a lot of stuff to remember. And like some of the, and this is where I was going with it is Joe put out some videos where he shows you just doing some stuff to where, Hey, let's not worry about all the infrastructure and let's not worry about all the setup and the tooling and everything. Let's just go do a yeoman setup and, and create your app and get rolling. Right. And so I highly recommend if you are getting started in things, don't try and get tied up in the architecture too much initially, because it can really bog you down.
1: Although I'm I'm pretty sure Joe might want to uh, correct you on the pronunciation, <laughs> if I recall.
2: Yeah, it's human. Stop. but I really do think, if, at least for side projects, like there's a a 99,000 to one chance that your side project is going to wither and die before it ever gets launched. And, uh, <laughs> your biggest problem is going to be uh, lack of follow through over scalability.
0: Yeah, it is. But again, I, I too, am also excited about these upcoming topics because it will bring it all together, right? Like, and it's nice to see it. It's nice to think about, Hey, how can I do this? If I have it in my mind as I'm going along, how can I do this in a way to where I don't paint myself into a corner? Right. That's that's really what it's about is just knowing that these things exist.
2: Yeah, and it's about having fun, too, on your start project. So, like, if the scalability is what excites you, then you, that's, you know, the core experience you're really trying to build, not so much the uh, the output. So, I mean, do, do what you feel like.
1: So going back, you know, circling back to the original question about where do you start, that's where everyone actually starts, is what's fun for you.
0: Yeah, it should be where you start, right?
1: Right. It really should be.
0: Yeah. Which for you is gonna be machine learning. For Joe's going to be <laughs> games. And for me, I don't even know do. <laughs> scaling the data. <laughs> scaling data. That's pretty much it. Dude, I've actually gone as far in my mind as if I built a few servers in my house that had sixty four <laughs> gigs of RAM each. Oh, wow. And had eight-threaded processors, I could set up a bunch of Docker containers and make it look like a web farm or some sort of server. Like, and then I'm like, wait a second, Alan, that's really stupid. There, there are uh, cloud services out there that I, I can do that a lot cheaper. <laughs>
1: heard of amazon
0: right <laughs> Yeah, that's the problem right like you can literally do this on amazon it costs you five bucks right you do it the way that i'm talking about you're going to be in at five grand before you even do anything
1: right five grand yeah, that yeah. might, <laughs> might, <with> your... <laughs> might buy you half a server uh
0: actually you know what's funny is i've spent unfortunately many late nights um searching around on new egg they have refurbished servers that you can buy that you know might be a couple years old but you get some decent specs for you know four or five hundred bucks i'm not gonna do it i've talked myself out of it but i have looked
1: the fact that he keeps tempting himself by looking tells me that he's eventually (laughs) going to pull the trigger he's just waiting to find the quote right deal
0: it's like yeah. shopping for a Tesla P One Hundred D. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> I want it, but I'm not gonna do it. So, yeah, man, I, I have a problem. I'm a
2: hardware junkie. I don't know why. Yeah, sometimes I just add stuff to cart, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put in the cart. I, you know, I'm not gonna buy it. I'm just gonna, just gonna put it there for you know maybe later. And then <laughs> five minutes later, we're like, oh crap, I got the confirmation. I guess I accidentally <laughs> bought it. I don't know.
1: Feels like weird me with mountain bikes lately.
0: Oh man. Yeah. Hey wait. What about a new 1080? You know they just dropped a 100 bucks, right? No. Yeah, so the uh the the Nvidia G uh 1080ti was just released. And so those are going to be $700 now. And then the 1080s dropped to about 500. You can actually get some for about 470 now.
2: So hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I might have to upgrade for that price. (laughs) See, there you go. My video card is six years old. Oh, dude, that's that's good return right there. Yeah. Yeah, and I never buy the top of the line. Like, it was like, you know, (laughs) it was in the sweet price point already. So,
0: well, you should feel good about this because it's no longer the top of the line. It's just
1: one step below it. But man, that thing. You can buy last year's model today.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on. Yeah. So, uh, let's say in our resources that we like. Oh yeah, did we have one?
2: Yeah, um I added the Lean Startup. We kept uh, talking about MVPs, so we brought it up several times And today so I wanted to mention the book that kind of started that and talked about really focusing on uh, building the minimum viable product for your business. And I was kind of thinking when we, when we were talking about the, what designers kind of starting with the design like I think the like the if the author uh, of Lean Startup was l- listening in, he might tell us to like Start with Photoshop, get a really compelling, nice-looking user interface, and only keep adding, like, server functionality until people start buying it. (laughs) And and then you know that's when you got the product. So, I don't know. I just think it's kind of cool. So, it's a very different way of thinking about things, and it's probably kind of healthy for us. Like, it'd be kind of cool if there was, like, a, a conference that, like, brought devs and designers together and, like... Had assigned seating or something, and like made everybody talk somehow.
0: <laughs> Signed seating, designer dev, designer dev.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you don't even have to sign the seating ahead of time. You could just have someone like sitting at the door, and you could just tell by the clothes they're wearing, you know, like uh, designer dev, designer dev, designer
0: dev, designer dev.
1: Uh, that's hilarious. The, the yep.
0: devs would be dressed up nice, right? That's what you said. Yep. That's what I heard.
1: And No, that would depend on whether or not they're looking for a they're job employed. or not. If they're that's looking right. for a job, they're going to be clean cut, uh, dressed nice. That's yep. excellent. I mean, look at us. <laughs> <laughs> All of us. <laughs> Boy, I'm looking you good. A comic book t-shirt. <laughs> uh, that's the dressy shirt. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's yep. hilarious.
0: Ah. All right, so now it's time for my favorite part of the episode. It's the tip of the week. Yes. All right. All right. I'm
2: starting this time. Um, So uh, last episode, we did a contest. We got a lot of really great tips mailed in. And uh, this was kind of like the runner-up. And we got this from uh, both Joe Ridley and uh, Paul Seal. They both mentioned Bootstrap Studio. And actually, Paul Seal has gone on to make a video showing you exactly how to use the site and uh, create a a responsive website without having to do any code, which is kind of weird. I feel a little bit weird when I first saw it um, because I... I didn't like tools like Dreamweaver and FrontPage and things that kind of try to, you know, whizzy way editors that try to do too much for you. You know, they would try to like say, no, don't, why don't you drag and drop some stuff? Don't type. We'll take care of it. And it drove me crazy. But um, now I'm kind of coming around a little bit. And now that I'm especially trying to focus on getting things that I, I don't care about as much just to be done and move on. It's really refreshing to have nice tools to be able to kind of like drag some stuff around, upload some images and have a nice compelling user interface without spending a lot of time. And if this was something I was gonna maintain for the next three years, then I would probably build up from hand. I'm going even use Bootstrap. But if this is like a little prototype I wanna try and get out over the course of a weekend, then you might wanna consider a tool like Bootstrap Studio.io or mobarees.com for getting together sites quickly and responsive Without any code.
0: Hey, so this Bootstrap Studio, what's it written in? Because it runs across Windows 7, Mac OS, and Linux? And Linux.
2: You know what it's uh, Isn't in? like everything uh, HTML5 now somehow? Yeah, you mm-hmm. can run it in a browser, or you can download it. So I'm, I'm guessing it's HTML5, JavaScript, and maybe Electron.
0: Oh, Electron, yeah, that's probably it. Okay, cool. I'm guessing. Excellent. And so mine, I actually have two, only because I'm borrowing one from somebody and I wanted to share this other one as well.
1: Where in the world is Carmen San Diego?
0: Where in the world? You're are? welcome. Yes. All right. So the first one is is one that I got from Edward Lichman, who is in our Slack channel, and we were trying to troubleshoot something that he had a problem with, and basically he had this situation where he would load a web page up, it would all be there, and then all of a sudden it would disappear. And he was like, what in the world's going on here? And there is a little tool in Chrome developer i never knew existed. So I'm going to open it up real quick. If you go to the network tab, is it only the, yeah, the network tab, there is a little video camera looking icon right next to the filters and right after the clear and the stop button. And if you click that thing, it will actually take screenshots of your page as it's doing things, and so you'll have this stream of screenshots that you can see. And when something happens, you'll actually see where it changes. So that's pretty nifty. If you're just wanting to see, like at what point in time something happened, that gives you an idea. I, and I mean, I've never seen it. I've been on that that developer tab. I don't know how many times over the past several years. So that that was a pretty cool little thing. And then the other thing that's that really I just wanted to point out that I think a lot of people don't even know about. If you do Visual Studio development like .NET or anything like that, Visual Studio uh, or Visual Studio .com, you can sign up. And I even I I have a link here and it's to the pricing page. But if you got a team of five people or less, it's free. And with that, you get unlimited Git repos, you get agile tools, exploratory testing, release management, and all kinds of other stuff. Um, unlimited users or free access to work items, one private pipeline to run builds and deploy releases from your own server, and one hosted pipeline, four hours a month to run builds. So if you're wanting to get into something and you want to you know work on your application lifecycle, Or something like that. This is an awesome way to go about doing this, and it's another place that you could put your repos. So, um, I I highly recommend checking it out. It integrates perfectly with Visual Studio. Surprise, surprise. Uh, So, you know that's that's my tip that I want to throw out there.
1: But it doesn't have to be Visual Studio. No, it doesn't. Because, and and here's where like because at first the way you're kind of describing, you might be thinking like oh, okay, well, it's just another place to put my Git repo. I already, there's already GitHub, blah, blah, blah. But what's really separating this from the rest of the pack here is that build pipeline. Yes. Because that build pipeline is huge. And this is why I'm saying, like, it doesn't have to just be uh, related to Visual Studio. You can actually do builds for uh, Xcode in there if you had anything JavaScript that you wanted to do. You the Actually, the build pipeline is pretty impressive and sweet, uh, it's really simple to create that pipeline. Literally, you, you would add a build step and there's just a wealth of options there that you're going to be surprised as to like what you can do in it. Um, you know, anything from like, you know, something as simple as like if you needed to run a uh, command line process to, uh, you know, compiling Xamarin projects or what have you in between Java uh, projects
0: it's it's pretty awesome i mean th- that's why i wanted to say it, is because a lot of people don't even realize it like the first place anybody thinks about is github right i'm going to go put my code up on github so right. it, it's it's an interesting thing to know about as as an alternative option and you can access it just like you would get code right like you can you get the url you can clone your repos you can do all that kind of stuff so
1: yeah it, it's pretty cool yep so uh my tip of the week, I wanted to share. Um, Jamie Taylor had mentioned this from our Slack channel, and I had never heard of this site, but uh, you know how we've joked about fiddle all the things, right? And how there's like a fiddle for everything, right? So, some genius out there on the internet, and I mean that in the most respectful way, made regex101.com. It's basically a fiddle for your regex. It's beautiful. You can, you can, Put your regular expression in there. You can give it a, some sample test data, and then it'll explain what the regular expression is doing, what it matched on. This might be the greatest thing since sliced bread. If it'll load, what?
2: Yeah, it looks like it's down right now. But I, um, I actually used this last week when I was it. trying to to uh, write a uh, regex for email address, which I know is totally wrong. But hey, the explanation is really fantastic, and the little tips it gives you, and even the way it matches is really cool. It's just great interface
1: yeah it is a very nice tool so uh you know definitely give that one a go and we because we've even talked about regex recently as it relates to like if you were looking for a part of your application to write your to introduce your first unit test that maybe that's uh you know a place to do it so this is just another another uh, uh tool you can add to your toolbox of something to check you know, the regular expression or even help you and craft it initially.
0: Oh, this is really cool.
1: Right? Yep. Yeah. When he mentioned that, I was like, wait, what I got to, what is this? Oh, oh my, (laughs) that that might be the most amazing thing that has been brought to the internet yet.
2: Did it's such a great job. It takes one of the least understandable things and least usable things in the programming universe and makes it much better.
0: And you know, the thing is, this is one of those apps that I never think about because there's no real persistence, right? <laughs> right. Like this is one of those things that is a great utility that stands on its own.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can, you can actually even like, uh, you know, pick your flavor of regular expression. Uh, so, you know, PHP versus JavaScript versus Python versus Go. Uh, yeah. And you can save these. You could share them. Like it's, this uh, is awesome.
0: I love this. This
1: is really good excellent. So thanks to Jamie for sharing this in the Slack channel.
0: And that is why our Slack is great. To learn more tips, (laughs) join our Slack, go to wwwcodingblocksnet slash Slack and sign up, come in there. The really amazing people in there. The community is awesome because of the people.
2: Yeah, and I think that just about wraps us up. So we hope you guys enjoyed uh, us kind of taking a a larger viewpoint and setting the stage for some new things to come and uh, let us know what you think.
1: Yeah, and uh, so with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Uh, Be sure to leave us a review. If you haven't already, you can find links at www.codingblocks.net slash review.
0: Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find all our show notes, examples, discussions, and more.
2: And send your feedback, questions, and rants to the Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head over to codingblocks.net and find all our social links uh, at the top of the page.
0: Well rehearsed. That's what we are.
2: <laughs> I get a giggle every time. Every time I get there, we're like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> that's a we, great idea.
0: Yeah, we've done this a uh, hundred times now and we still mess it up somehow. It's awesome. Hey, Joe. Don't you hate wasting time debugging code every week when you should actually be working on new code?
2: Yes, I really do. (laughs) Let's
0: try it out (laughs) again. Uh... uh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hey Joe, don't you hate it when you waste time? Swaste? <laughs> waste time. I hate it when I waste <coughs> Oh god.
1: Swasting away again in Margaritaville. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh.